All right, well, good morning, and uh, thanks for joining us here this morning. We, we've got uh, we turned the lights down a little bit so the screen you can see a little, a little better. We're trying some new technology here, and uh, it's not as bright as we'd like. So, uh, but anyways, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I've been praying that God would, um, God would bless you for showing up this morning, that He'd encourage your heart, He'd strengthen your faith. And so we're going to pray for that, and then we're going to jump into some verses that I think uh, God could use to help help in all that. So uh, I'll just pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into this here. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us together here. And Lord, I just pray that as we look at your word, that you would use it to to encourage our hearts, to, to strengthen our faith, to renew our minds and things that are important to you and things that should be important to us. And God, I just pray that as we look over evidence for for what you did and the proof you gave us, that that it would strengthen us, especially in the, the day and age that we live in where um, the world is not helping our faith. God, so we, we just look to you this morning. I pray this would be encouraging for us all. Pray for the kids as they're in uh, Sunday school, that you'd bless their time and the teachers there as well. And we just ask you for all this grace. We tell you we're blessed to be here with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we are uh, starting a series here just for the next couple weeks, just called Encouraging Evidence. And we're going to take some time to look at uh, evidence of, uh, from Easter. You know, last week we talked about the good news of Easter, the meaning of it, and uh, how we can know for sure we're going to heaven. But the next couple weeks we're going to look at um, evidence of why we can be confident that that message is true. And so... We're going to look at things like the empty tomb. We're going to look at the appearances of Jesus. And we're going to look at, um, let's see, the changed lives that it brought about in the disciples because of all of the above. And then lastly, we're just going to look at how the events of that first Easter have impacted history, archaeology, and even culture in our world. So those are some of the things we're going to talk about. Again, like uh, Bobby announced, we're going to be doing on Mother's Day, we're just going to have a special service just to honor all, all the moms in our midst. Uh, moms of all different phases of life, new moms, grandmas, visiting moms. And so we just encourage you to invite moms uh, to the to the Mother's Day thing there. We're also just putting out a, a sign-up list if there's anyone... Uh, we like to do baby dedications. Just uh, as parents, we, we like to dedicate our children to the Lord. Our baby dedications would be different than uh, our baptisms. Generally, we, we baptize kids who are, are believers, or we baptize adults, someone who wants to go public about their, their private faith in, in Jesus. And so, um, But anyways, we're doing baby dedications for Mother's Day, if you're interested. We're also going to get on the calendar a time for doing baptisms. I know there's a number of people that have talked about that, so we're going to figure out uh, where the best location will that might be a lake we've done the hot tub but I think we might do an outdoors one this next time here so anyways let me know if you're interested in any of that but this morning we're going to talk about exhibit A the empty tomb one of my favorite quotes about uh, the resurrection and the events of that first Easter Sunday um, it's a quote that says um, it says this it's about the stone being rolled away, but it just says, um, the stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out of the tomb, but so that you and I could see in. You know, if you know, if you get that, I'll repeat it again, but the stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but that so that you and I could see in. 
You know, Jesus had shown even later that day, He had the ability to walk through locked doors, things like that. He had the power to do all sorts of things, so He really didn't need someone to let Him out of the tomb. You know, that was more so that that we could see in, really, this morning we're going to look at seeing in the empty tomb through the eyes of the Apostle John. John saw in and wrote it down, and in some ways he was like our eyes and our ears, and he recorded what he saw so that we could believe. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're also going to look at some uh, alternative views to what was recorded, what's been written in the historical record that we have. There's other views because the ramifications of what happened are so great, people would like to see some alternatives. And we're going to look at some of those and see uh, how they might not be as reasonable as, as what we have in the New Testament accounts here. But we're going to start by reading... John's account of that first Easter morning, and we're just going to read the first opening paragraph about the empty tomb. Each one of the Gospels has uh, a section dedicated to this, but we're going to be looking a lot at what John had to say this morning. Um, on a personal note, he's my favorite Gospel writer, so I lean towards John's things more than others. I, I love them all, but uh, he's, he's the one I'm looking forward to meet the most when we get to heaven there out of these these gospel writers. So anyways, let's just read this passage together and and jump into it. On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter uh, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And uh, And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We'll keep going there, but if you haven't figured, when John's writing, he refers to himself as the other disciple, which I, I think speaks a little bit to his humility. You know, he could have said, like, the cool disciple or the young disciple or the fast disciple, but he just kind of refers to himself as the other disciple. And yet, he has a very good view of his relationship with Jesus. He was the one who was... Uh, you know, uh, recorded as leaning on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper and things like that. He, he even sees himself as, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Jesus loved them all, but I just love the relationship that John shows us with Jesus there. But anyways, they're both running, um, and he beat Peter to the tomb. Way to go, John. Let's keep going here. Um, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So, again, I think it's an interesting scene here. Uh, Mary tells him, Hey, guys, the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. They go running. John wins in the race. You know, I don't know if you like my, my kids. They race to everything, you know. But John won this one. He had the bragging rights. But John gets there, and it seems like he's a little apprehensive. He's like, here's the empty tomb. He's not there. Uh, I'm just going to stand outside, you know. And then Peter shows up. Peter's, you know, the zealous one. He's just like, I'll do anything here. And runs into the tomb, and he starts looking around. He's, Jesus is not here. But these garments that he was wrapped in are here, and John comes in. And but it says of of John here that John saw, he saw the empty tomb, he saw the 
the garments that Jesus was in, and, and he believed. We're going to talk about that more when we close up the message here. But um, anyways, this is John's account of what, what happened, his eyewitness account of it all. We know that Matthew has one. We know there's one recorded from Mark and Luke. And, um, but there's, because the ramifications are so great, the idea that someone would die and be buried and be raised from the dead is a, it's a miraculous thing. And so there's other views that people have come up with to say, well, that's kind of hard to believe. What about this? And we're going to look at a few of these uh, other theories and kind of show how they're inconsistent with the evidence that we have from history um, and, and the evidence of these accounts that we, we have before us here. But um, one of the first ones we're going to look at is a theory called the swoon theory. And this is a theory that it's not been around for a long time. Really, I think it started gaining popularity. I think it was in the 1800s. Um, but it's the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It was, he was in a real tough place. He got close to dead, but he wasn't really dead. And when they put him into the tomb, the cold air and the stone, it, it resuscitated him. And so, and then he went on to do different things that these theories say that he did. But we're going to look at a few reasons why that is not the, not the most reasonable thing to believe. You know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, uh, this, this is just one place where it talks about someone who, who witnessed that he was dead. This is a soldier that was on duty, one of the centurions. And it just says this about when Jesus died. It said, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry, and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. You know, and, and death by crucifixion, if you've seen any movies or things like that, um, you know, you're, they would nail them to the cross, and then they would nail their feet to, to the cross as well. And it was death by asphyxiation is what it was. It wasn't suffocation where you, you can't get any air in, but you would fight to, to get your breath. And then you'd pull yourself up or push with your feet, and then you would hang there, and, and the air would stay inside you. But in order to get it out, to exhale, to take your next breath, you had to push up to be able to release the tension so that you could take a breath, and then you'd go back down. Obviously, if somebody discontinued rising up on the cross and taking a breath and letting out the carbon dioxide, there was a pretty good indicator they weren't alive anymore. This says right before this that Jesus had cried out to his father right before that and gave up his spirit. And, and then Centurion went on to say uh, he saw how he died and he, he believed he was the Son of God. And, and that's a testimony in and of itself. But he, was, he witnessed that Jesus had died. Uh, another place, um, later in Luke, it also just says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. He learned from the centurion that it was so and gave the body to Joseph. Again, the centurion said he had died, but then Pilate's like, did he really die? And he just gets confirmation that he did, and then they, they take the body and they give it to Joseph. But there was another point of confirmation that he had died. Um, you know, uh, another uh, maybe evidence that Jesus had died and not just swooned was there's, um, there's an entire chapter in uh, the book called The Case for Christ. It's just devoted to the medical evidence of medical experts who read the description that was witnessed and say, you know, 
he had to have died. Uh, one case, someone was asked, uh, you know, in, in that interview in the book, just, is there any chance that Jesus survived this? And the response of the, the physician who was being interviewed said, absolutely not. There is no way that Jesus survived this. And he, he goes into great detail, which I'm not going to do, to talk about crucifixion and the, the flogging and, and everything that Jesus went through. But he draws attention especially to the idea of this passage here, when blood and water flowed, when it, the soldier pierced him. It just says, um, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead. Again, I would assume that's because the other guys on the cross were still going up for breaths of air and coming back down, and they broke their legs so that they could not do that anymore. Jesus was not doing that, so I think it was pretty clear that he had died. Um, and They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. But the man who saw it has given testimony. This is John writing again, and, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. John's saying, I saw this, he was dead, they pierced his side, blood and water flowed and I just want to let you know this is true. I'm telling you the truth here, you can believe me that this really happened. And um, medically speaking though, that idea of blood and water, um, I'm just going to read one excerpt from uh, from this medical physician that, that speaks to what was likely going on there medically. Um, He just says this, one of the paragraphs just says, even before he died, um, and this is important too, the hypovolemic shock would have caused him to sustain a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart, called pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called pleural effusion. And he goes on to say, um, uh, the Roman soldier, being fairly certain that Jesus was dead, confirmed it by thrusting his spear into his right side. Um, He goes on to say, the spear went through the right lung and into the heart. Then when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion, the pleural effusion, came out. This would have had the appearance of clear fluid like water, then a large volume of blood as described in the eyewitness John's account in the Gospel. Basically, he's just saying, you know, some would say, well, you know, he wasn't dead, and so they stabbed him, but most people saw he was dead, and he put a spear in him, and when the spear was pulled out, blood and water flowed, which had shown he, he, had, he had been dead, and this fluid had already accumulated, and it was a sign just from modern medical evidence that we know that he was dead, and and this guy gives a testimony that, without a doubt, he believed Jesus was dead. And, and so this is just, you can go into greater detail on that if you want. But uh, another you know, reason why we know that Jesus didn't just swoon and get resuscitated, and in Luke there's this, uh, this glimpse that we see that says this. It says, now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with each other. Uh, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So there's this account that Jesus was walking with these two disciples. Now, could you just imagine if Jesus had only swooned, he got resuscitated in the tomb, somehow he got out of the tomb, which that in and of itself, you know, with the 
the lack of blood and everything that he had, I don't know how he would have gotten out of the tomb if, um, if he had just been resuscitated and everything was just happening naturally. The other thing is, you know, so how could he have opened the tomb? The other thing is, how could he have walked? This nail had pierced his feet. And, and I think trying to walk on that would have been impossible. Um, not only, how could he have walked seven miles to Emmaus with these guys? And then, uh, you know, the last thing about the swoon thing, besides uh, all, all these other, and you could probably come up with more reasons why there's a bunch of holes in this theory. Um, but the last one is that it would not have been very inspirational. Jesus somehow drags his beaten, anemic body out of the tomb. Somehow he's walking, which I have no idea how that would work. And somehow the disciples get inspired to go, He really is the risen Lord. It's going to change my life. It's going to start a movement. All because they saw this guy that didn't really die. and It just doesn't make sense. It, it's not, um, it just doesn't seem to be a reasonable explanation to what was recorded as happening. And so, again, there's probably many other things you can come up with on your own on that. But the, the swoon theory is, is really not a reasonable account of what could happen. Now, there's another theory that, that people have, and then this is even recorded in the, gospel, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, I think this one's in, but um, it's called the stolen body theory. It's the idea that Jesus, um, that he, again, he didn't come out of the tomb on his own, but they, they opened up the tomb and they stole him. And then they, they took him away and basically said, ta-da, he's alive, he's not in the tomb anymore. And, and everything that we've said is true, you know, and that, that's the idea of the stolen body. Some would say the disciples did it, some would say the women did it, they stole his body. Um, all of them have kind of the same holes in that, but the, let's read this verse here. Um, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. This is from Matthew 28. Um, and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Up to this point in the passage, it's the empty tomb. The angels had told told him that Jesus is not here. Go tell the disciples. Um, but then he goes on. When the chief priests met with the elders and, and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So that's, uh, that's what they said. You know, just... Uh, goes on to say, if this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now there's a, a few things just to notice about this interaction here, but one is that um, the Jews confirmed that the tomb was indeed empty. You don't have to come up with a plan how to, do, how to explain it if it wasn't the case. In and of this you know, this in and of itself explains that there, the body was missing and they wanted to just offer some sort of explanation besides Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they say, hey, to the soldiers, um, let's, just, let's just tell them that you were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body, and, and that's what happened. And again, there's a number of holes and flaws with this. Um, we're just going to look at a couple of them. One, this is obviously not consistent with the disciples' morale or their mode of operating up into this point. They were, they were discouraged. They were in hiding. They were scattered. The idea that somehow they rallied and they overcame this, this guard that was set up, the Roman guard that was set up, is just not consistent. Nor is it consistent with their MO. They had, they had a sword at one time, but Jesus told them, go get a sword, by the way. And they tried to defend Jesus, 
when this mob came, and whoever it was that used the sword, I don't know if it was Peter, or, or I don't know if it specifically says, but, um, you know, somehow his sword fighting skills, he ended up lopping off a guy's ear. Now, that is not a highly trained swordsman. You know, I don't, it's not a fatal wound, I think, to lose an ear. Jesus fixed that situation. But these guys were not known. They were not known for being fighters. They were not known for being soldiers. And the Romans were. The Romans were trained at fighting. They were skilled at killing. And the idea that these disciples would have overthrown those guys is it's just not consistent with what has been recorded about them at that time or, or them in general. Being guarded by Roman soldiers, again, that's... That's a big deal. They had put a, a Roman seal on the tomb as well that uh, could not be tampered with. And if it was, those who had put it there were responsible for what what happened. In this case, the body being stolen. So it's not. Um, it wouldn't have happened without a fight. Uh, the other idea is um, if the disciples tried to move the stone, or if the women came, the same concept's true. If they tried to remove the stone and fight the soldiers, um, it would have woken the soldiers up if they were sleeping. Now, it's known historically that Roman soldiers on the job were, were not known for sleeping. They were known for doing their jobs, and a lot of them it was on pain of death if they were found asleep on the guard, on the watch. And, and so, um, but again, if they had been asleep, these guys moving the rock would have likely woken them up. Now, now another thing that's, um, again, they come back to the not very inspirational. The disciples came, they opened the tomb, uh, they did it while the, the soldiers were sleeping. They took his dead body out, and then they made up a hoax about him being risen, and they went on to die for this lie. That doesn't make a lot of sense either. That's not very inspirational, motivational. The other thing that is another huge problem about this, again, is that, so they said, tell him this. Tell him while you were asleep, the disciples stole the body. Now, what's the problem with that? Um, well, if they were asleep, how in the world are they going to know who stole the body, right? Um, you can't both be asleep and then give testimony that you knew who stole the body or you saw it being stolen. That, that's kind of a contradiction in and of itself. And so these guys had, that was the best theory they could put out there, but there are so many holes in that that it's, um, and they gave them money to, you know, I think you have to give someone money to hold on to that story because that is, that's a tough one to swallow there. So again, the stolen body theory just seems like it's not a reasonable explanation of what happened. Now, another uh, theory, another alternative theory is that they went to the wrong tomb. The women went. They were going to go put spices on Jesus' body. Um, they were going to go check it out that, that morning, and, um, and they got to the wrong tomb. And, of course, there wasn't a body there because it was the wrong tomb. I will just read this one real quick, but it just says... Uh, this is, uh, yeah, this one is in Matthew. It's also in Mark. But it says, as evening approached, there was a rich man. This was before they buried Jesus. This was when Joseph was asking for the body. Um, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out of the rock goes on to say he had a, a, rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Most of the accounts show that Joseph placed Jesus' body in the tomb that he owned, and the women saw where his body was placed at. So there's a couple problems with the idea of the wrong tomb. One, the women knew where the tomb was located. 
they had been there just that evening before, so it's hard to think they couldn't find it the next morning. Another thing would be that Joseph, if anybody knew where this tomb was, Joseph could have said, by the way, guys, that's not even in, in my private garden area there. It's over here, you know, and he, he could have told them where it was. Um, you know, and then lastly, if it was the wrong tomb, the Jews would have said, hey, by the way, here's the right tomb, and it's still sealed like it's supposed to be sealed, or here's his body, let's open it up, see his body's still there. But they were not able to produce a body. They were not able to say there, his body's over here, or there's another explanation. But um, the wrong tomb theory is really, um, it's really out there as well, as far as an, an alternative based on what was recorded from that morning. Um, another theory is that, uh, well, maybe this idea that, that he rose from the dead was just, uh, it came over time, you know, given enough time, it got embellished, and he didn't really rise, and, and, and they just came up with it, and a um, number of problems with that. We're going to look at this last, um, the legend theory, and then we're going to look at some reasons why it might have actually been, like they said, but um, a couple reasons that the legend theory has a hard time is one is that um, one is that the women were in, in all the gospels the women were listed as the first witnesses the problem with that is that in the culture in which this all occurred women they could not uh, they could not be a witness in a court of law their testimony was not considered valid and so the idea that the women saw Jesus first and the empty tomb first was something that that was one is probably a little humbling for the disciples two it was probably an honor that God had bestowed on the women to say you know what it's going to be the women who find this out first but but three if you're going to come up with a legend a legend you can kind of contour it how you think it would flow the best but to come up with the idea that women found the empty tomb or found Jesus first that would be something if you're writing a legend you would want to exclude that because it's not going to help you in a court of law. It's not going to help you make your case. And yet, conversely, the fact that the women were the first to see it and that was recorded, it puts an authenticity to this account that that a legend would not have. And so that, that's one of the points that, that many would make about that. Another is that um, the empty tomb was recorded in the Gospel of Mark, and some make the case that the Gospel of Mark was written as early as 37 A.D., several years after these events played out. A legend uh, takes, some would say, you know, it takes two generations at least to develop a legend. You know, the, the word is passed on to someone, it's passed on to someone else, there's no way to verify the facts. But many scholars would say that the Gospel of Mark, who recorded the empty tomb um, and, and the resurrection scene, would have been written within several years of the events happening. And then, even earlier than that, was there's an early church creed that uh, was circulated that that Paul shares here in 1 Corinthians 15, but it, we'll just read that one real quick. But it says, What I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And this excerpt from 1 Corinthians 15 was known to be a creed, a, a, a church creed that was... Uh, used with the early Christians there. And most would believe that this creed being recorded and this creed being circulated probably even preceded the Gospel of John. So the point in all of that is a legend takes time to develop. It takes a, a century or two. And these records 
were recorded within years of the actual event happening. And so a legend theory is, is just not likely. Um, it's just not a, a reasonable alternative or a reasonable explanation to the facts that we have. And so we're going to take a look just at, at another option. We, we've looked at some of the, the major ones of alternatives, but we're going to look at the option that, that Jesus, that he actually died and he was buried and he, and he rose again, just as the historical evidence states here. Just a couple verses on this. Um, I love in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, when they were writing, they said a few things that just, um, they ring true. They ring like they have credibility, validity to what they've written here. And I'll just let you listen to what Luke said. Luke said this, and this is uh, Luke 1, New American Standard, but he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, uh, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything thoroughly from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth. Some versions say the certainty about the things you have been taught. Luke's saying, I'm writing some things out here. I'm writing things out in detail, in order, so that you can know what really happened. Luke, some of you know, was a doctor by, by trade, but he was very detailed in his writing. He, he wrote a, a lot of specific geographic places that can be referenced and, and checked out. And, um, but, but he said, hey, look, guys, I'm, my account here is to help you know with certainty what happened. And, and he gives very detailed accounts, this, and then in Acts as well. Um, but then John, some of you know, John has some, some things in there about his account as well. This one is the first letter of John, but, but I love what John has to say here. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one, who is life itself, was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then He was revealed to us. He goes on to say, We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. And I just love, John is just saying, Guys, we, we saw Him, we heard Him, we touched Him, we ate with Him, and we want to... Write this down, pass it on to you, so you can have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And I love how he says, even that you're, you may fully share in the joy that, that we have. You know, they had a joy about knowing the Savior came and He died and He rose. And there was a joy that they wanted to make sure others would share in that joy. And they, they wrote down, John specifically saying, we wrote down our, our witness experience, our first-hand testimony here. Um, and so again, uh, I think about how John recorded the empty tomb and that idea that the stone was rolled away, not that Jesus could get out, but that you and I could see in. I love that account that John writes. He says uh, that he, uh, finally the other disciple himself, reached the tomb. He went inside. He saw and he believed. You know, one other version says Peter went in and he saw and he kind of wondered. One translation says he wondered, he marveled. But this says that John, he went in, he saw the empty tomb. And for him, 
it, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. It said he believed Jesus really had risen from the dead. John recorded a bunch of other miracles, but when he saw the empty tomb, it said he believed. And I, I think there's encouragement in that just to realize that if John came away from the empty tomb going, guys, this I'm convinced now. This was even before he had interacted with Jesus personally, which we'll talk more about next week. But if he saw the empty tomb and believed, then you and I can believe as well. And, you know, the last thing John wrote in that account of the, the empty tomb and then the appearances that he recorded, and then, you know, he appeared to Thomas, doubting Thomas there later in that passage we'll look at next week. But he says this to wrap up that chapter. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You know, and John just said, hey, there's a lot of things I could have written down about Jesus, but I wrote these down so that you could know He really was the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in His name. And so, you know, um, the idea here is that the most reasonable explanation of the evidence that we have is that Jesus really died. He was buried, and he rose again. Um, I thought this was captured well in an interview. I'm just going to read to you a, a passage from, again, this is, this is in a, a little booklet called The Case for Easter. It comes from the larger work called The Case for Christ, um, which I think there's a movie out for now. I, we have to go see if the movie is coming out, or is it already released? I'm not sure. Anyone seen the movie yet? Is it good? Oh, yeah. It's good. Nice. We'll have to get and see the movie there. But, um, one of the chapters, um, there's an interview between Lee Strobel and um, this guy, uh, uh, let's see, Dr. Craig, I think is his name here, or Craig Lane, I think is his name, but um, he's, uh, you know, he's got so many degrees, I, I can't even list them all here, um, but he's an expert as it relates to the resurrection. He often debates atheists on the subject of God, the existence of God, the resurrection here, but but I like how he says this. Um, you know, he just says that um, Lee Strobel asked him this question. He asked this expert the question. He goes, um, he said, even though these alternative theories, uh, these alternative theories, like the ones we've just talked about, admittedly have holes in them, aren't they more plausible than the absolutely incredible idea that Jesus was God incarnate who was raised from the dead? So he's basically saying, you know, it seems like the reason why people have come up with these alternatives is to them, uh, the idea of Jesus supernaturally being raised to the dead seems, well, well my, why not come up with something that's even, you know, further out there that has less evidence, you know, and that's, that's basically what he's saying. And he says this, he says, um, I think that people who would push these alternative theories would admit, yes, our theories are implausible. But they're not as improbable as the idea that this spectacular miracle occurred. And, and Dr. Craig goes on to say, At this point, however, the matter is no longer a historical issue. Instead, it's a philosophical question about whether miracles are possible. You know, he's saying, uh, some of these guys go, I'm going to throw out another wild idea because I just don't like the idea that a miracle happened and it was recorded. So instead of that, I'm going to come up with something that is so far off the record that there's no evidence for um, and I'd rather believe that than to believe this really happened. And, and he's saying that becomes a problem because they're not 
they're not looking at the historical evidence of what happened. They're making up a philosophical argument against what happened. And, and um, but then he goes on to answer that philosophical argument about, well, which is which is more likely still? Um, and so you know, Lee Strobel asks him, well, what would you say to that? And he says, I would argue the hypothesis that God. Um, the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead is not at all improbable. In fact, based on the evidence, it's the best explanation for what happened. What's improbable is the hypothesis that Jesus rose naturally from the dead. Uh, that, I would agree, is outlandish. You know, that just that would naturally happen, that someone would rise from the dead after three days. That wouldn't naturally happen. Um, he goes, that's outlandish. Any hypothesis would be more probable than saying the corpse of Jesus spontaneously came back to life. And he goes on to say, but the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't contradict science or any known facts of experience. All it requires is the hypothesis that God exists. And I think there are good independent reasons for believing that he does. And he goes on to say, with that, Craig added this clincher. As long as the existence of God is even possible... It's possible that he acted in history by raising Jesus from the dead. So he, he's just saying that if God exists, which he, he, you know, he's written books on the existence of God. He argues and debates that. But he's saying if God exists, then, then it's possible that he intervened in history and he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus... A body doesn't naturally do that, but God can raise someone from the dead. And then he goes on, again, I just underlined the point he said there. In fact, based on the evidence, what was witnessed, what was recorded, what people died for, based on the evidence, it's the best explanation for what happened. It's the best explanation is that Jesus really did die and was buried, and he rose from the grave, as was recorded, as the historical record states, as... uh, Thousands of fragments and copies and ancient manuscripts have. This is entered in the historic record. To say that these other things have, have occurred, there is no, there's no evidence for that. It's speculation at best here. But um, so, anyways, uh, I just want to close with that idea that this, the the empty tomb, is is well, basically like he said it there. I want to repeat what he just what said there. That based on the evidence, it's the best explanation for what happened, that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again, proving that he was indeed the Christ, God in the flesh. And so, um, you know, John wrote this down to, it, it caused him to believe. He said he wrote it down to help you and I believe, so that we can have, and that we can have life in his name. And uh, I just want to encourage you guys to, to think about, when you go out there, that you have been given everything you need to to believe that this really happened. He gave his eyewitness account, you know, for me it comes down to this, that either John, either what John wrote and witnessed is true, like the Bible says it is, like the ancient manuscript says it is, or or John lied, or someone changed John's words. But there is no evidence recorded that John lied or he was in the habit of lying. There's no evidence that what he might have otherwise written... Um, you know, in order to say someone changed it, you have to find out what the original thing said. There's no evidence there's at all that what he said was been changed or that he lied about what he said. And so, to me, that just leaves me with, you know what? I believe what John said, and it, it changed 
his life and it changed the lives of the disciples around him. It's changed my life. And it's more reasonable to believe that what he said is true than it is to believe he lied or that somebody changed his words. That takes more faith than what I have. What I have, it takes faith to believe this because I wasn't there, but John was and the other disciples were there and this is what's been recorded. It takes faith for us to believe that, but we can be confident that our faith is is reasonable. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's a very reasonable faith, and I would say the most reasonable explanation for what happened that first uh, Easter Sunday. But let's go ahead and pray, and we'll call it a morning here. Uh, Well, Jesus, we do just thank you again for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that, um, that you did die for our sins as the scriptures foretold you would. And you were buried and and you rose from the grave again as was foretold and as was witnessed. Lord, we thank you that you had all of this recorded so that we could believe. And in believing we could have life and, and we could have confidence about what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that you did die to pay for our sins. We thank you that you are alive and you can help us with our problems today. We thank you that you've secured our future with our Father forever. And we just give you thanks and praise this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.